0: If you want to support the Missing Witches Project, find out how at missingwitches.com and pre order New Moon Magic 13 Anti Capitalist Tools for Resistance and Reenchantment by Risa Dickens and Amy Torup.
1: You aren't being a proper woman, therefore, you must be a witch.
2: You must be a witch.
3: Welcome. Um... Welcome home to the Missing Witches podcast. Welcome, Coven. Welcome, friends and strangers and uh, tech witches and harvest witches and activist witches and uh, whatever flavor you fucking feel like today. We're excited to see you. Are you making berry offerings? Are you just barely surviving? We love you. We want to make the biggest joyfulest tent of this work of the resistance and the reenchantment as we have it in the name of our new book and part of that means looking at like who feels at home in our circles and how we make spaces of home feeling um and we're really not anti men that's just never fucking been a part of it for us fuck the patriarchy forever but, but men have suffered under that system for a long and brutal time. And it's just something we want to think about and talk about. And Lunessa seems like a time to think about it. You know, there you have these traditions of a warrior god or a craftsman god. And some people will talk about it today, talk to today, might know more about that than I do. And certainly know a lot about craft and have wrestled more with masculinities. Than I have, although I've wrestled with my share. Um, So, we welcome our friends, our wise friends today, to a conversation that we're sort of loosely making a container to call craft, masculinities, and magic. These are friends who weave beautiful things, literally and figuratively. And we're so excited to be with them today. Amy, how are you, before we open up the gates to these kind, magical people, and how are you feeling about Lunasa and Lamastide?
0: I love a halfway point, as you know, they're so bittersweet, the halfway point between the first day of summer and the first day of fall is, it's hot and sweaty, but there's a shadow on the horizon. And as a witch, I kind of love that. I kind of love these like non-binary halfway points and between um, equinoxes and solstices and that kind of thing. So this is a very comfortable time for me. I'm comfortably being hot. I'm comfortable being sweaty. I'm comfortable taking a moment to enjoy the fruit of a harvest before I get into what I have to do next. So again, this time for me, sometimes it's those first berries, those first wild raspberries that I find in the yard. Um, So yeah, again, it's a balance of forward thinking and also just like languishing in the heat and swinging on a hammock. Um, I always find myself between these two places on these between times. And I'm so excited to be hanging out with our guests today. And again, get into that you know, non-binary universe that we actually live in, where we can question gender essentialism and we can ask like, what does masculinity mean to us and you and all of you who are listening? One of our first events that we did as Missing Witches, we were invited to talk about uh, the divine feminine. And so we went into that with our presentation largely questioning okay well we then we need to ask what is femininity what does that mean before we can get into the divinity first let's try to define the femininity so again um remy specifically maybe i'll we'll start with you and your introduction and i want to i want to say something first that maybe you can talk to is that when we met you told me a very interesting story about the history and origins of knitting and we were kind of laughing about how it's now become perceived as like a feminine domestic art when based on what you told me. it was uh, an act of survival. It was a hunting mechanism. Anyway, I don't want to say anymore. Hi. <laughs> Our guests today are Jonathan and James and Remy, and we're so grateful to be in circle with you all today. Thank you. All.
3: And so we'll invite you and we'll start with you, Remy. Introduce yourselves in whatever way feels right. Who are you? Who? Are, what are you bringing to this conversation today? Where are you? How are you feeling? Also, I want to say all of these uh friends we asked them to send their bios and so you'll see them in the show notes and stuff and (laughs) i don't know if it is like uh humility uh in the uh, that's tied to the state of the sort of complicatedness around being human and especially male these days but none of you listed your actual accomplishments <laughs> which I thought was sort of delightful so feel free to continue to not list <laughs> or or name check as you feel as you feel called to
4: <laughs> thank you Amy thank you Risa uh i there are so many things to say. Wow. I I don't even know where to start. Um, so, um, actually when I got the email, um, and received the invite for uh, taking part in this podcast, uh, talking about masculinity, one of my first reflex was like, but why me then? I was like, what, what, how can I talk about masculinity? I don't even know like what it means to me. Um, So just to put in context, I definitely identify as a queer person. Um, My gender is an uncertain thing. It's a fluid thing. Um, I think I'm a very, very uh, air uh, person. My chart is like full of air no fire uh i'm very fluid i i go with the flow a lot and so i've i've actually struggled and not uh, like a lot thinking about this question about masculinity um because i i actually didn't know how it was like i was identifying with that and It's when I was writing my bio that I actually realized my relationship to masculinity is like tightly tied to failure. And I'm really happy to be able to talk about failure because I think that um, being raised and socialized as a male person, um, like failure was not an option especially coming from a very uh, like science uh, oriented family, failure was not an option. Um, It was only, if it was a positive thing, it was only a a tool to then succeed. It was never enough, failure was never enough. And um, I think my whole relationship about like with masculinity is about like the, Enoughness, or like lack of enoughness, um, which I guess formed the person that I am now, and uh, like
2: the the
4: air entity <laughs> that's uh now like always questioning um, like who I am and what I am um, I want to uh, go back to your what you were talking about, Amy about uh, knitting. So, I, I'm a knitter. Um, I've knitted for, I don't know, a couple of years now. <laughs> um, and I don't actually remember exactly uh, the story I was telling, and maybe uh, my uh, viewpoint has changed a little bit now. I think now, I know that there's this, um, common belief or like this belief now that um, knitting uh, came to life through, I think, fishing and was actually um, a way to make these nets and that these people were uh, usually men. Um, And there's this claim that uh, knitting was actually invented and i'm putting some very like big air quotes uh by men, and i have like i'm now questioning everything i know about history um especially that we have this very very uh like white centered revisionist uh education um and that um and, and male supremacist as well so I I'm really ambivalent or like I, I, I don't know what to think about this uh, this like narrative especially that it's sometimes or maybe too often used uh, by other male crafters to justify their place or like ass- um, like assess Uh, superiority, or not superiority, but just saying like, you know what, we were doing that before you, or something like that, which I think is very um, problematic. Uh, Also, it's a very male-centered attitude to think of it as like a competition, like who was there first, and who did it first. So who has the claim on it as like our invention. Um, So I don't remember what I said about that, uh, Amy. And if it had to do with like claiming something, I'm deeply sorry that I once thought (laughs) something like that.
0: (laughs) No, I think think you and I were talking more about like the arbitrariness of gendering Mm. any kind of activity. And how it's interesting that something that was used to make clothes was possibly um, used to make fishing nets before that, and both of these are opposite gendered, but it's the exact same action, just used Mm -hmm. for different ways. So the whole thrust of the conversation was about like these arbitrary labelings of things as masculine Mm -hmm. or feminine. So yeah, no, we, we were always good. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And like, and
4: now I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking like, let's remember that, um, uh, this like history comes from like the texts that were selected that made it through the books and that, um, many other, uh, societies or, or communities have been doing these things and like never made it through the cuts, uh, because they didn't serve the people in power. So, um. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to remember this, especially when we're talking about uh, male or like male presenting figures in uh, crafts that are uh, mostly dominated by women. Um, Like trying also to like leave the space of like, we're also okay to be invited in these spaces and not have to claim Property or, or anything
2: like that.
3: James, do you want to jump in next and do your intro and respond?
5: Really do that was wonderful. Um, I'm James. Um, I'm playing around with using my mom's maiden name, <laughs> Gardner, um, and I live in Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute lands, it's commonly referred to as Denver. Um, I feel like a lizard today because it is hot. <laughs> um, I'm all fire. I'm like all fire signs. it seems like. And, well, I'm a Virgo uh, son. Whoa, I'm a Virgo sun. Um, so I'm a little bit of earth and fire. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm just this person who's been on this pathway for a long time, this masculinity pathway. Um, and I can't underscore enough that the idea that masculinity is bound up with feelings of failure, feelings of shame, um feelings of not being enough. Um I was really good at being like a chad. Um like I was like really good at it. Like I was like um just really good at it. Like I <laughs> Well, until my mom died, then everything, you know, then everything falls apart, right? Um but you know, I had your typical, you know, typical sort of absent father sort of storyline. Um, where I was earning love by playing a sport that I was good at because I played it six hours a day to, to gain recognition and love. Um, so, you know, a lot a lot of the way I talk about masculinity is my response to it. Um, and my response to I mean, I was like thinking about it before we dropped that dropped down, but like this masculinity wound. Um, and this constant need, at least in my life, even as this is gendered heterosexual man to define myself in opposition to what I what I think is one of the most oppressive things that I have to deal with on a daily basis and things that I don't have any interest in. Um, and because I've made that choice, I'm not welcome in most spaces um, where people that look like me, that sound like me um, typically are accepted. Well, at least until like I start talking about my values because I'm a traitor to every form of privilege that I have. Um, I have no interest in, um, this is where like the Aries Rising comes out. I have no interest in being down with the, the, the Chads. Yeah, it's all fire. It's all very it's all very fire. I'm in my fire era right now. We're setting out boundaries. Uh, we're burning bridges. Um, we're doing all that stuff, mostly to my to my father who has, who is absent. Um, and getting to the I, I think the other thing, it's interesting how all this stuff is already like coming up right away and stuff that I had sort of like like uh, indexed in my mind. The way that men use selectively use history as a way to place themselves in and then claim ownership, Um, it's classic glass ceiling stuff, right? So I'm a sociologist by trade. Um, I make money by being like a researcher or whatever. Um, And in sociology, we call that, you know, um, women and femme identifying people uh, run up against that sort of glass ceiling. Right? They, they can only advance so far because of patriarchy, because of gender bias, because of pregnancy discrimination within workplaces. Um, and oftentimes what men will do is they'll go into female dominated spaces and then they're able to use those sort of cultural narratives to justify getting paid more. Um, so that's all super interesting to me as a sociologist, who's like very, very interested in um, taking away those sort of boundaries um, and doing away with gender as much as we possibly can within a system that is so built on selling those identities based on that. Um, anyways, before I get too far along, I'm a weaver. I'm a death worker. I love that I didn't put I'm a death worker in the uh, in, my, <laughs> in my bio.
3: You didn't mention sociology at all.
5: No, your bio. <laughs> I just, but again, like we're so fluid, right? Like yeah. the minute you unboard yourself, the minute you unmoor yourself from, like, these these labels, right, um, you start to realize that it's so situational. Yeah, I'm a lizard today. Like, I even wondered, like, what of what use I'd be able to say because I've basically been outside as much as I could be um, with having a wage labor job. As you can tell, I'm, like, still sweating. I like, came inside from, like, riding my bike, being outside it's, like 90 degrees, and I'm, like, still sweating. Jeez. I'm a lizard. I'm a lizard.
3: Uh, I... I'm really loving the the fire and air spirit of these introductions and I want to hear Jonathan what you're inspired by from this. I also want to point out that Jonathan and Remy are at different rooms of their house (laughs) right now which I love and I want to include love in these stories of exploring masculinity and I want to include craft and how we find our ways to love. Um, but Jonathan, you don't have to tackle all of that now. I just want to hear what you what you're thinking and how you're feeling.
1: Hi, um, my name is Jonathan. Uh, I am also a strong fire sign, uh, Aries Sun, Capricorn Moon, and Cancer Rising. And thinking about that triangulation uh, really interests me about how that informs a lot of uh, what I do about like plunging boldly into the fray uh, with care and being uh, intensely stubborn uh, about um, values and things that are important to me. Um, But that also bring me to states of retreat uh, and withdrawal. And that's maybe more where I'm at uh, today and for a certain time, actually, uh, a pulling away uh backing off, backing up, like holding up in my tower, as I wrote in my bio, my you know, our third floor Montreal apartment <laughs> with a view of the mountain and the like fresh air blowing through and a vague sense of the horizon to remind me of uh the prairies uh where I grew up and that sense of being able to see laterally and from very far distances being able to watch a storm blow up uh, and like roll in towards you. And I think some of that, I mean, so much of my childhood perspective, as you've also all shared, um, comes to inform things. And so I think about, yeah, that landscape actually is really important for me about the sense of seeing things coming from far off. Uh, and that also has to do with anticipating danger. And that is another important part of what masculinity means for me as being a terrain of um danger and threat and something that needs to be navigated. Uh, either to out of like for self-protection. Uh, in some cases for the protection of others. That's not
2: necessarily been my experience so much. Um, it's more about trying to win this war of attrition or like manage being under siege uh,
1: for what feels like constantly. And that my my sense of like masculine identity is not something that I've been troubled by or like in deep consideration over or something that needs to be changed. Uh, It was more about the strange expectations that that brought on for other people. And that I seemed that I felt very clear on who I was, but that didn't translate to how other people uh, approached me or what they thought of me or what they wanted from me. And that trying to figure out how to translate the the I ness of being the like um, the mystery that I was also trying to uncover about myself, and yet not seeing that well reflected in the eyes of others. And as a like growing up queer, uh, you know, white cis male uh, who found a space to shine in theater and like musical theater and choir and like expressive. Uh, spaces expressive performance spaces uh in the late 80s and early 90s of course everyone thought thought and knew in a way that they had access to knowing that I didn't that I was gay and that that meant that they had this like privileged information over me that they then tried to use and that also was a a kind of war to deal with of saying yes maybe that might be true but not in the way that you think and actually fuck off you have no like space to be in my space, uh, about this. And that if I had something to share with you about this, that would be my business. And so like my, my sexual identity, my gender identity and expression are all things that are, they're difficult to pick up and like, look at, because I felt like they were foisted upon me and that, uh, I got, um, like tarred with some brush, um, we were talking about Alice in Wonderland and the like this image of the um, in the Disney cartoon version of the like roses being painted red and these like very sad standard rose bushes dripping with uh, like red paint all over the place and being very shoddily done. And maybe I felt, um, yeah, tarted up in this way somehow uh, of trying to present uh, something that would be acceptable. Uh, and recognizing that the things that were clearly not acceptable about me, uh, I had to find my own quiet space um, to live them. So that meant a lot of hiding and a lot of closet work and a lot of shadow work and a lot of silence. And um, there are things that I'm I'm trying to think about and find ways to articulate and like give room to, give light to, uh, and give space for. I also knit, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and quilt, but, uh, and cook, um, but it's hard, before I used to say that I would define myself, I I'd never wanted to define myself using nouns, and that somehow those kind of, the nouning of things, of like the being a thing, um, was not uh, something that I could accept, and that was especially about being gay, Or about being a man or about being anything. I said, no, I'm a verb. I do things. Uh, and I'm it's in the doing. But now uh I'm really trying to find space to not only do, because there's a very performative aspect to that of like, I can only exist if I'm in action. I can only exist if I'm producing something, if I'm you know moving forward, if there's motion, and that the sense of rest that's necessary, of recuperation, of feeling. Is not doesn't feel like that kind of doing that kind of activeness that can be defining, that kind of mad, rushing around to prove that one is worthy of taking up space, and so now I'm talking about my craft process as a process of unmaking, or of disassembling, of taking apart, of rearranging, uh, of reorganizing, and so I, I kind of I think uh, I'm like a compost heap right now and I'm I'm in it and that's uh quite luxurious and strange uh place to be
3: I did wonder um I would love to hear more about from from maybe Remy but from all of you and Remy is a starting point like what does the idea of craft or when did that idea start to intersect with how, who you were and what did it give you? If it gave you anything, is it tied to, is it tied to your sense of self? Is that sense of self, you know, something beyond masculinity? Is it, is it, does it, is it a rewriting or reweaving of masculinity? Is it tied to your magic? I don't know. So I'm just curious.
4: Thank you uh, it's a very interesting question. i think um for me, it all comes back to um sense of failure, uh which then uh led me to um, be kind of obsessed with transformation um, I wrote in my bio that I consider myself a shapeshifter um, and I think i think both figural, figure, figuratively and um, uh, literally, um, like I've started doing gymnastics as like when I was two. Um, so like sh- like changing my shape all the time, uh, moving through space um, in an unconventional way, um, but also in the figurative sense, Um, the idea of playing with codes and like probably coming from a a desire to fit in, um, trying to learn the codes and then apply them to then fit in, Uh, feeling like in my day-to-day life I was failing at being a little boy. Um, I soon realized that I
2: was actually able to play with that. Um, that actually one of the things
4: that made me fail as a, as a socialized male um, was my big sense of, uh, like my big sensitivity um and like this overflow of emotions, but mostly this like being sensitive to things and maybe attuned to uh people 's energies um, so it led me to this realization that my one of my powers was to um, take these codes and play with them and apply them um, and that's probably why I started doing theater uh, at the age of five, uh, which then became one of my careers. Um, but it was always about this transformation, about trans- like transforming things. And I think the craft came in a desire to materialize the, these transformations.
2: Um, Seeing the work of like shoving
4: something through something else and make it something else um, and then for example, thinking about knitting like this thread that's so tiny and so easy to break um, by reinforcing it with all of these loops and and making it something so beautiful, which is. Actually, like, I just, just as I'm talking about it, like I've, I've been questioning the sense of community for a while now and now realizing that it's actually a community that we're building when we're knitting or weaving something because all of these joints
2: are reinforcing the whole thing, the whole uh, fabric. Um, so I think in order to like create this this
4: beautiful community it requires transformation um and it, it was a
2: beautiful way for me to witness it and understand it more um, and also like it's it's always felt magical like for me for me this
4: this is when i am able to actually see my magic uh because most of it is usually invisible, and uh, the transformation of object is an like practical, visible way of doing magic. Um, and I'm a very visual person, <laughs> so being able to see my magic um, was very empowering. Um, and getting this finally this sense of of, of success of succeeding at transforming something that was a fleece and then spinning it into yarn and then from this like very fragile thread making it a garment and or dyeing it and using something to like put color in my life um, and other people's lives too because they get to see me being so colorful. So yeah, I think I maybe I went a little sideways but um, no. yeah
3: that's exactly where i i want to go somehow right i want to i want to pull at these threads exactly i want to think about for myself too i mean i i think about moments where uh a meditation in a trying to understand what was wrong in my life and where i needed to go and to um Transubstantiate previous experiences and alchemize them was was spent embroidery. You know, it was just like I had to go step by step. I had to. It was all freehand. Like I just had to think my way through the fact that I could survive mistakes. That I could adapt. I could take another step. It would be okay. um James I I know I we need to hear your story of coming to weaving now if you're comfortable with it and tell yeah and I just want to say
5: the first based on you talking about embroidery I mean one of the um so the person that taught me how to weave um Sarah Newbert was somebody who was very big on the neuroscience tied to weaving it just so happens that a lot of people in Colorado that are um Interested in in weaving and teaching weaving, Rebecca Metzoff as well, they're all highlighting the the healing aspects of weaving to literally put your brain back together after trauma. Like there's a reason why vets, when they came back from World War II, they would put them down. Um, I don't know specifically about whether or not they were knitting. They probably were. I specifically know about weaving. Um, and literally that was their way of walking home. Um, and weaving has been my long walk home for a long time. You know, I talked about how good I was as a Chad. Okay. <laughs> I laugh at myself all the time because I, I just have such a self-deprecating sense of humor. I just can't help it. But it's, you know, I was this person that excelled in everything they did because I wanted to be accepted um, by my father. Um, want, you know, uh, I, I wasn't given the option to really like do art, <laughs> you know, it was, you know, uh, PhD by 28, uh, in college, you know, whatever. Then my mom died. Then I got crippling OCD. Um, I went to, I taught a class the next day after my mom died. Um, I was in full plow mode as I call it, um, but her final wish was to learn how to weave. She was a prolific crochet artist. I mean, she was amazing. I still have all the blankets. A lot of my woven language that I use in my weaving is based on the symbols that she put into her work. So um, my, my very, my embrace of the feminine and the divine feminine is very deep and it goes from always being accepted in female dominated spaces, sociology, also female dominated space. Um, And finding allies for people that looked at masculinity, um, class inequality, um, homophobia, every phobia, xenophobia, every phobia that I'm against, finding allies in those female dominated spaces. Um, So my mom passed away, she wanted to learn how to weave, I ended up taking a rag rug class in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is like literally an epicenter of weaving. Um, It's the convergence of the Diné-weaving culture, which goes back literally uh, since Jump Street, in terms of Diné culture. Um, uh, Spanish settlers, like there's literally folks that are direct descendants from the Spanish conquistadors that live in villages, predominantly Spanish villages in northern New Mexico, that are the Trujillo specifically, that are master weavers. They're amazing. They do the whole cycle. And then there was a bunch of the back to Landers that came there, specifically Rachel Brown. And I got really wrapped up into that. I was just like absolutely entranced by that. This idea that you could weave in a circle. Um, You could literally take a fleece, spin it, dye it with flowers um, and weave it. Um, And that to me is the most magical, it's as close it's as close as somebody can get to feeling like a God. And I talk about this a lot in my writing, but like you do, you feel like you feel how divine you really are as a human being when you're wrapped up in that cycle. And I'm not saying this is like an ego trip, right? Like I don't like, you know, whatever, like this is sort of like on that whole like Alan Moore tip, like the the British writer um, who talks a lot about magic. He created his, he, he became a ceremonial magician at 40 He, like, announced this at his 40th birthday party. I'm going to be a magician. He literally just made up his god. Like, Alan Moore's great. Like, I love Alan Moore. Like, he's just, he's wonderful. Um, And, like, the the interesting thing that comes about when you're on that pathway of healing and the fact that your whole craft is bound up with death work, that's bound up with losing your your only person, um, your family, um, is that you go Through this like tremendous, like death and rebirth process, I feel like I'm dying and, and being reborn now. Like, it feels like uh, uh, like every season now, but like, when you start to get attuned to it, like, you start to see it. You know, we talked a little bit about the shape shipping aspect, right? Like, Remy right, was talking a little bit about that. Druids historically are shape shifters, right? They're these sort of like outside of convention people who like are hermits, they live on out on the hedge like nobody can contact them, right? Like, unless you really got to go find them. And I really like that aspect of being a hedge druid. Um, because uh, go figure with my fire sign, I don't get down with many of the established orders <laughs> for, for whatever reason. It has a lot to do with like social and political beliefs and it not lining up with mine. Um, but, you know, a lot of this whole journey that comes in and what I've realized um, being a crafter and female Dominated spaces and being allowed to be in those spaces and being invited in, um, and just making myself like not, you know, making myself small, but just not trying to take up much air in the room. Um, is you realize how much of masculinity is this liminal state? I mean, like, if you really start like realizing that you don't fit into the buckets, like, you might like do certain things, and, like, you're okay accepted, but the minute you start calling people on treating women as objects, the minute you start talking and not wanting to use. <laughs> any you know any homophobic slur in like normal vernacular you're immediately kicked out of the club like they kick you out they burn your armchair that you use to like watch sports ball with everybody and you drink beer and like they, you're done you're cooked you're kicked out um and you start you you start to see the veil of masculinity um and, and you, you specifically within my own irish wisdom tradition it's a reweaving And weaving, it's crazy how much they mention weaving um, within the Irish wisdom tradition. John O'Donohue talks, he like uses like weaving metaphors like every five minutes. Um, So John O'Donohue being like the, like basically the the heretic Catholic priest who left the church because he could not be held by the church. The church could not hold um, John O'Donohue um, because his ideas were too expansive. Um, But it's all in line with, Reweaving the masculine in with the divine feminine and finding that balance so that all people, regardless of what society, what what bucket they want to put them in, can use the powers, can wield the powers of creation, can wield the powers of destruction, and that all of the, all of the binaries about who's supposed to wield that, you know, you know, this goes back to what Yvonne Obero is talking about in your you can tell I'm, I'm, I'm nerding out now. I'm like referencing past issues. Can you tell me, watch, I why I listen to that podcast? But she, you know, she talks about like how in, in Wicca, you know, uh, her book Inclusive Wicca has done a lot of work to try to break down those those binaries. And it's huge. I mean, that's that's what craft does for me. That's what craft craft is, you know, weaving, spinning, dyeing, foraging, growing plants, doing that weaving in a circle um, has allowed me to access my own divinity, has allowed me to explore mysteries within my own ancestral traditions has allowed me to decolonize my practice in ways and my own like life in ways that I never could fathom. I mean, it goes on and on, right? It's all intersectional. You know, it's it's masculinity, but it's class, but it's gender, but it's sexuality, but it's uh, colonialism, right? It's everything. Um, But I think me specifically, I had a big masculinity wound and I needed to rectify that. And I think one of the big healing aspects has been craft. Um, And been able to find people who would be willing to accept me um, when I was kind of thrown out because I didn't believe what everybody else believed.
3: Jonathan, does that ring true for you too? your experience of connecting with craft like spaces where you. I don't know Jonathan and I like cook together and it's a pleasure and a joy you know to watch someone who knows so much about the craft of food and ingredient or you know hearing stories about knitting and like May's first quilt is was one that Jonathan gave her you know um I think of you as someone with a profound love and appreciation of craft but I don't really know how you think about
2: that
1: well i hearing other other people talk about it i i really became over overwhelmed by emotion and i i have some very personal like uh long away things that i want to share that there's an interesting thread to follow on this and that uh f- there's an extremely personal and like sensory quality that i think is what links me to to the craft that i would identifies the thing that I'm doing with my hands. And actually the thing that I'm doing with my hands right now while I'm talking is like rubbing these uh, recycled African like glass beads that I've threaded on this (laughs) uh, strand that is really just for me to like finger and feel and like have sensory um, feedback from. And it actually helps me uh, stay kind of like still and concentrated. And the act of doing this while listening of course, reminds me of the story that uh, my mother tells about me as an infant, which is that, well, actually the circumstance. My parents didn't want me to have a security blanket. They were very concerned that they were going to have to go through this terrible um, parting of me, uh, their their infant child, with this uh, disgusting you know a uh, messy stinky thing that could never be washed and could never be left behind and uh, and so to preemptively avoid that possibility and that grief they swapped my blankets out every day so i never had one blanket i had a like plethora of them an abundance and it's wounding in a way to think about that I also didn't have one caretaker but I had many that I went into care at six months and that I had many people who were like worshipped and loved me and like took care of me but there was no sense of like a single source or like a reliable Place. My therapist is aghast and was from the very beginning, you know, many years ago when I to- told her this story. And she went, but the security blanket, it's a transitional object. Like it's important. It's important to bond to this thing and then to give it up because it's it's like so developmentally like essential to developing a sense of self, about being able to like leave this, be able to self-soothe and then leave the sense of comfort, about being able to like let it die to put it away. And so my my infant. Uh, pre like cognitive response to this situation was to pick the fluff off of the blankets to pick those like acrylic like nubs that would sit in the surface of all of these like early 80s uh you know synthetic uh woven or knitted things and collect them into a tiny little ball and then i also was you know uh in the story shamed for not having developed sufficient manual dexterity early and being in a low percentile about my ability to like do things with my fingertips, and so I would take my uh, fists, uh, my kind of clumped, uh, you know, non-definitive fists to like hold this clump of uh, acrylic fluff and rub it up against the side of my face uh, for comfort, and that that was my way to self-soothe, and that was my response to this uh like storm of uh sensation of textiles of uh, variation of smells of all of that, and I have no memory of that. It's just a story that was told, and now that I retell that story in this way, it's interesting i try I try to think about these things in an axiomatic way, which is to say, what if what if this meant this thing and then I reacted that way? What information could I draw from that? And so I think. I think about
2: that nervousness that um, like drive or like anxiety
1: in my fingertips about trying to do things, about trying to hold on to something that then feels fleeting. Uh, And that, that also has a lot to do then to a sense of like identity. Who am I like, who am I to myself? Who am I to these other people? How can I uh, be seen as worthy of care and like being picked back up again or being like um, uh, being received? And so that maybe state of anxiety, if we think about it as a like a what if kind of way. Let's imagine this infant. Um, power and mastery become really important things. How can I be sure that I can? Rely uh, on the world? How can I be sure that I will be in a secure or safe state? And uh, so, becoming fiercely independent is uh, one. I won't rely on anybody. Um, and I'm really attached also and was as a child to the fable of the little red hen who asked everyone to help uh, with the planting of the seeds. <laughs> And the watering of, and the harvesting of the grain and the grinding of all of these things and, uh, and the refrain all the time, it's like, oh, well, if you won't help, then I'll do it myself. And that, that kind of mantra came through of like, I'm the only person I can really rely on uh, to take care of myself in this way, which is not to malign the abundance of care that I received and the support that I had, but this like deep internalized sense of i'm alone and i need to figure out how to make this work and so craft became a way to uh, develop and exert mastery and one of the primary ways that that came up as an adolescent was being able to come home uh, as a teenager or even as a like preteen and make lunch Uh, and being able to have access to the space actually there was a big a kind of ongoing fight from being extremely young to like, why can't I just go home? I can take care of myself. Uh, you know, this story when I was three about trying to make pancakes to, for everyone for breakfast uh, and like getting up early and knowing how to do all of the things and having followed all the steps in one of my first meals. And then, you know, not having woken my parents up, uh, wanting to surprise them, and but realizing that I could get all of the things, the pancake batter and the milk and the eggs and all that stuff, but I couldn't reach the bowls. So I made it on the camera, and that's not a particularly good strategy, but it's like a, a nice place to start and being like, Oh no, I know how to, how to do, I know how to do this. I knew how to walk home. I knew how to get to my address. Uh, you know, I asked my father to let me out of the car to walk home when I was coming home from preschool and I showed up on the front door and I knocked the, I knocked on the door. My mother answered and she was aghast. She's like, where's your father? What are you? It's like? Oh, I walked home. I'm fine. It's no big deal. And, uh, and she said, well, what, she saw my father after, she was like, what were you doing? Why did you let him walk home? He said, I was driving in the car right next to him the whole time. Like it was fine, but I was so convinced that, um, that I could do these things. So food maybe is um, like not diagnosed or like not sufficiently important, like higher level deal of dealing with a kind of hypoglycemia or just like consistent, like grumpy hangriness about needing to eat. That finding a source of nourishment and being having a constant source of nourishment is really important for me. And so, as a teenager, my mother uh, started to do a master's program uh, at during night classes when she worked during the day. And so it became then my responsibility as the oldest to start to like learn to cook and take care of the family. Uh, my father makes great breakfasts and is good with eggs, but that was about it. And so uh, for my younger sister and I, like I started. Uh, making food which was making lunches and making meals and that meant that I could go home by myself at lunch I could invite people over I could carve out my own space where I could live this kind of independent feeling as a you know 10 year old come home and eat craft dinner or come home and do these things and so Crafting this nourishment from raw ingredients or out of a box and a few simple things from the fridge, you know, some Mr. Noodles package, uh, some chicken wings uh, boiled and then broiled with Louisiana hot sauce, uh, some classico spaghetti sauce with uh, ground beef fried up. It's like these were many of my first meals. But, you know, when you started at 12 and never stopped, like suddenly the deep, deep dive into, into mastery and the power, that power of being able to offer not sustenance, but also nourishment uh, and care, the sublimated form of care and saying, I can provide myself with this elemental comfort every day, the beauty of eating, uh, being able to eat of having access to these foods uh, and being able to assuage this distress that's inside of me. And that's inside of other people too. And to be able to do that with, with ease and reliability, I think is where the my sense of power around that really comes from. And I have a lot more to say about uh, knitting and uh, other things after that, but that was a long uh, pitch. So I'm happy to cede some space for someone else.
5: I totally joke by calling myself club hands, like today. Like, I, it's like part of me making fun of myself. And like, cause my wife is a clothing maker, right? Like she's literally like, I mean, like, designs are clothes, can sew everything. And so I was coming into, like, fiber art as this person who's just, was, like, in the realm of ideas, getting off of a PhD, um, you know, could like, could, like, make, very interested in using my hands, but didn't have a lot of the training to do it. And I would joke in the beginning, uh, we both went to the first um, weaving class together. Um, Sarah loved Lily's weaving, like, absolutely adored it. And like, literally just every, every time she does anything fiber related, it literally just shows out. You're like, she's like, she'll just show up and it's just amazing. And so that I would joke about calling myself club hands. Um, but like, you know, you sort of see like, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, what men do in those sorts of contexts, you know, it's to a touch on the idea of mastery, right? Like me constantly downplaying my own ability. Um, but also like it being weird, like thinking back on that first experience. Like, yeah, my first weaving's ugly. I still have it on like my whatever my Instagram grid. Like, if you go back, all seven hundred posts or whatever, still there. I'm not going to delete it. Um, but it's interesting. This idea of self sufficiency is also like tied into my story as well, in terms of like literally, I, my dad like didn't show up at the hospice when my mom was sick. Um, he didn't ask about her after she passed at a dinner a day later, we were just like, it was just my sister and I, like you just had to figure it out. And luckily I found weaving and, you know, everything else associated with it, just to sort uh, of dig me out um, of that and to, to have that avenue. It's just interesting when you find it, you know, like it just, you know, in terms of your life, course finding it at such a young age, I think for me initially, like body movement was a big thing, like with tennis, like even though there was this whole component of seeking attention, There was still this this, uh, place where I could control things um, in a deeply uncontrollable context of being between two divorced parents who were, you know, battling one another. And I was asked to be the quote unquote man of the house to defend people. Right. All that garbage. Um, And that was, you know, I've always found these little spaces where I could be the master of my own domain. And guess what? I'm a very independent person as well because of those experiences, because I couldn't depend on other people, um, and I could only depend on myself to bring myself out of it. And you know, for for and the classic male sort of like not going to therapy for years sort of consequences, right? Like I have OCD for years, don't realize it. Nobody can help me with that. Um, I tried to meditate my way out, <laughs> as 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 most. Uh, as a lot of uh, uh, white folks have done, uh, they look to Buddhism and there's nothing wrong with it, right? Like if you're doing it right. I just was a particularly bad Buddhist and had all the wrong reasons for being a Buddhist. <laughs> I was just trying to bypass stuff. Um, but yeah, I really like the idea of reclaiming mastery um, in a way that is healing. Um, and that really, re- that part of your story really resonated with me. And I think the rearticulation of masculinity for people who are much more in line with the liminal state of masculinity is extremely healing and extremely important to give back to other men who also want the uh, sort of exit path, exit exit strategy outside of the sort of the, the iron cage of masculinity. I'm drawing on Weber. I know it's iron cage of rationality. I'm being dramatic. I'm being a sociologist, but I'm just going to do it. The iron cage of masculinity is the
2: same as rationality.
3: I want to invite you all to go with that idea. I, I want to talk forever, but also I really want to be respectful of bedtimes and and the times that we've carved out for this. Um, imagine the audience for this podcast. Okay, so it's mostly women, but all of those women are thinking perhaps right now about the man in their life that they will send this episode to. <laughs> don't you think I feel like I feel like this might be one where you're like maybe you could listen to this and hear something that feels familiar or like welcoming or or like that feels like a kinship right like that's what I want I want those men to to know that there is an an exit strategy from the cage from the brutal cage and that it involves us, you know, a circle of love, these, these stitches of care and finding a pathway out that still values your mastery and your skill, um, and your craft and your protection, but also doesn't rely on you being all those things all the time that has space for all your diversity and your non-binary glory. Um, so that's my invitation, closing remarks.
4: I find it really interesting to hear how, like, it seems like the three of us came to like a mastery in a sense of, of um, relying on on oneself, and this idea of I can do it all by myself, um, and I am going to figure out how to do this from A to Z. Um, for example, I started knitting. And then at some point I was like, oh, I actually would like to dye my own, my own yarn. Uh, I wanna choose my own colors. Um, and then, oh, I'm actually really interested in, in spinning. I would really like to start from from maybe like comb calm, calm fiber or carded fiber. Um, the only thing that stopped me from starting from uh, full fleece is that we don't have the space here and it needs to be cleaned and it needs a place to dry um and it's a big a big curse that we're not willing to uh welcome in this apartment um i mean you don't just have like a whole like closet full of fleeces
5: <laughs> that are waiting to be cleaned. no i think that's uh- I do, I do now. I'm just joking. It's just funny that because I, I totally, I totally commiserate that experience.
1: Turn the camera around so you can see the pile of boxes that are full of fleeces waiting to be spun. I mean,
4: mean, it's, it's so like alive. fleece, I got, I got, fleece, and yarn and, and fabric. <laughs> uh, but the the thing that I am, it made me realize is, and I, I'm also, I'm make, I'm also making this uh, parallel with uh, something else that's. Uh, more intimate in my life, um, and I was like hesitant to um, decide whether I would talk about it or not, um, thinking that this uh, podcast will be um, listened to quite widely uh, and shared. Um, but I think it—I think it makes sense, and it's—it's—it's a—it's a good parallel to do. I—I um, I do rope bondage um, as a personal. Uh, intimate practice, also uh, publicly with other like-minded people, um, even teaching um, abroad. And um, I identify mostly as a bottom, bottom-leaning uh, practitioner, which means that I receive the robes. Um, and it's very interesting to hear most people who get tied up.
2: in um, one of their motivations or one of their, um, like like their motor for doing that is the idea of letting go of control.
4: Um, it could be like, I know many people who have a lot of responsibilities in their day to day life, and they need to learn to let go of control, um, or they need to have this space that feels secure to put their safety into
2: someone else's, uh, someone else's hands. And I never really um, identify with that. I never,
4: never able to resonate with this statement And for me, it's always been a feeling of being in control. And um, I'm actually a lot more comfortable being tied up because I feel a lot more powerful when I'm on the receiving end, uh, because I know that all the decisions are made, not all, but a lot of the decisions are made based on my input or based on my reactions and my safety. Um, and in the last year or so, I, it, it made me question a lot um, like these reflexes of needing to be in places where I'm always in control. And why am I, why am I not able to, or why am I not willing to give up control and to like fully trust, uh, and I think it's this huge trap of toxic masculinity that a man can only rely on themselves, and uh, that we have to be the ones fixing things, and we have
2: to be the ones. Uh, finding solutions or, or making sure that, that we get to our destination. Um, And all of this, it's, it's just
4: smoke and mirrors. Like it's, and I know that, and I've known that for a while, but yet even and the practices that I um, engage in in order to undo these things I still get stuck in these traps and I think it's the one of the biggest
2: traps of masculinity or toxic masculinity is um, to not trust that one can lose control and that it's okay
5: and that resonates with my experience completely my my toxic mask my articulation of toxic masculinity is saying i c- I can fix myself, I can control my own mind because it's my mind. What did it lead? I just tied my brain up in knots until I couldn't see my way out of the labyrinth that I'd created my own mind exactly hundred percent that's all toxic masculinity, right and craft provides that to me, this sort of decentralized space where a lot of that stuff drops away when you're just doing a repetitive task over and over and over again. That's why I like bicycling. That's why I like weaving. It's why I like spinning. It's this space that you tap into when time slows. You know, it's very similar to, right. I mean, it's just that you, we all know that feeling, right? Whether it's you get it at your altar. I get it at my altar, but I get it in other places too. Um, And the ability to unweave it. I mean, basically, when I decided to go to therapy, I was sitting at my loom, um, being a typical guy. I'll stop using the pejorative term, okay? I'll stop doing it. It's rude. Even though I'm making fun of a formal version of myself. Um, And we were listening to, like, a Krista Tippett on Being podcast. Uh, Open quote, close quote, the power of podcasts. Missing witches. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and it was about like just you know sort of like the neuroscience and like the what we had found I forget who the, ter- who the person was but it was just basically like approaches to anxiety like mental health approaches to anxiety and all of a sudden I'm just sitting here and I'm like I'm going to therapy tomorrow what like what and I can't tell you the number of times that's happened with fiber art. I, I, it's weird. It's a completely, uh, it's magic. It's just complete and utter magic. And all of a sudden I'm in therapy and then I'm doing exposure therapy and going to the 47th realm of hell through exposure therapy, facing everything i have ever afraid of, right? Whatever. I'm really good at suffering because of the tennis shit. Yeah. So like, <laughs> I did the advanced exposure therapy course. Yikes. I never want to go back there, but I'm like totally comfortable with the underworld now, okay? Totally comfortable I, I want to go on so many asides, but I'm going to stop. All that resonates. This is wonderful. I can see why we're all talking. This is great. We're all in inter- we're all interwoven in such
2: a wonderful way, and it's really beautiful.
3: Yeah, I'm so excited just to just to let you meet and get to hear you talk. I hope that we can meet again and keep talking because there are so many more ideas James I want to come back to you because I want you to think about what your um what the message is you're going to slip through the gates to the men trapped in versions of masculinity that they want to find their way out of and Jonathan I want to come back to you first yeah there's so many things you could respond to how just pick up any threads that feel right
1: I want to pick up a thread about this uh, immediate and burning decision to go to therapy. And for me, uh, it was about rage and it was about trying to figure out what to do with this anger, this like constant volcano, like magma inside of me uh, and trying to figure out uh, like why I was in such like angry distress like walking down the street and having someone walk too close to me and just feeling like ready to like totally wig out and like scream and that the felt the sense of being constantly invaded or slighted by uh other people by sounds by smells um by neighbors uh you know uh, by the city by the like press of humanity and being unable to to kind of face that it became interesting for me to think about and feel how much the sense of rage was actually a secondary emotion, something that was like manifesting on the surface, and that the like primary emotion underneath that was sadness, and that I was really, really sad about a lot of things, and that I had like oceans of grief that felt uncrossable, and that uh, has to do with giving up a lot of things, giving up on a lot of things. I trained as a theater artist and I stopped. And I then trained hard as an opera singer and then stopped. <laughs> um, part of my return to handcraft had to do with trying to anchor myself in reality, in something concrete that I could hold on to after working so much in the ephemeral uh even cooking is like a very transitory thing like yes one can be nourished and maybe you know gain or lose weight related to it but it doesn't have this like tangible ongoing feel and the sense of the pleasure of being in rehearsal of creating or the supposed pleasure of being in the studio like singing and practicing which for me was always terrifying um of working things out but then the next day like having nothing to show for it the real practice of it being like, you just need to show up every day and keep going. And that if you don't do it that day, well, then it didn't happen like going to the gym or like any other thing. Whereas uh, with knitting, when I picked it back up, something that I had learned as a child in admiration from watching my mother uh, be able to do these things uh, and saying, I wanna learn how to do that too. Uh, but I picked knitting back up while I was uh, in school as a, as a classically trained vocalist and opera singer because I needed something quiet. I needed something I could do with my hands while I was sitting in an orchestral rehearsal, waiting 40 minutes to stand up and sing my two lines and then sit back down again. I needed something that would allow me to pay attention, uh, but that where I wouldn't feel like I was losing my mind. And that had a lot to do with, or it led me to realize that there was a sense of abundance to be found in very small things and that I could time travel, which was to say I could expand and contract the sense of time by connecting with my hands and material goods through repeated meditative gestures, though that wasn't the purpose, it was a collateral benefit by just picking out each stitch as has talked about and like finding where the needle wants to go of like repeatedly making these same gestures over and over again as a spell, as a, as a call to something, to some beautiful future that seems worthy of preparing for and therefore an act of hope of wanting to reach forward to this future me who would have this thing that I would offer to myself uh, and kind of jump over the thousands of hours of prevaricating and like work and carting this around through airports or uh, you know (laughs) in in, you know living rooms and in front of you know countless uh, books on tape or whatever but just that suddenly this thing would have a, it would exist from something that didn't exist, that I would would have like alchemically conjured something out of this long spun strand. And, And that was really helpful for me also in recovering from not being a performing artist to be able to say, I want something that I can shove in a bag and put in the corner and punish and say, I want you to think about what you've done. You're being very bad right now. You're giving me an extremely hard time. And I don't like that. So you're going to go over there and I'm going to ignore you for as long as it takes for me to figure out what the fuck I'm going to do with it next, and uh, then pick it back up again and not really be lost in the way that if I didn't sing for two weeks, that I had a lot of work to do to pick back up again, that the, my access, my immediate access to that would be gone. So there's this thread of abundance that's become increasingly important as I become increasingly less employed or increasingly less financially like solvent. And I've started picking things up out of the garbage and uh, scrounging for fabrics by what's cast off. And an idea of, I'm gonna quilt with this one day, but what's actually really been, it's about trying to fill up the pantry, to fill up the cupboard and to create this stash with some sense that this will provide me with endless opportunities, endless material to work with. And I have more things that I could ever do with, but it it still lets me live in hope when I look at them and say like, one day I have an idea about this thing and I want to turn it into this other thing. Uh, And I, I imagine then still that there is a future that I want to prepare for where those things are possible or where they may also not be necessary. How many blankets does a person really need? Not that many actually, when you have one that you actually that you like and maybe that you made yourself. Maybe one for summer and one for winter and one to take for the park and well, maybe one for the sofa and you know, one to eat on and uh, one to have sex with. And uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different kinds of planar surfaces that we can drag around with us and like wrap around ourselves and uh, that can accompany us through life. So yeah, craft, craft brought me abundance and in something that felt very uh, solitary about my experience of being a human being and being a like mask coated person and not feeling necessarily that I had access to for whatever strange, mysterious reason to um, a stable cohort that uh, people come and go in my life a lot. And I've been very close with a lot of people and develop really strong bonds, and yet I've watched the like ebb and flow of that, and have people move away, um, both geographically and emotionally, and that uh, trying to find some other things to hang on to, uh, to remind myself of those times of that comfort, of those those links,
2: of that attachment, um, are important.
0: It's... I do. Um, I think it's so interesting that um, we talk about toxic masculinity as a separate thing from masculinity itself. I think it's so interesting that all three of you um, have gorgeous facial hair. So there's some part of each of you that is, is leaning directly into masculinity. And so I kind of want to end just by like celebrating you know, we have toxic masculinity, that doesn't mean the masculinity is toxic. We're just trying to, yes, chest hair, all the hair. I love it. Thank you so much. Listeners, you're so sad you weren't here live to see the the chest hair show. But again, I, I want to say again, like, um, we have toxic masculinity, but we also have fucking beautiful masculinity, and I'm so grateful and proud of the three of you for coming and sitting in circle with us and examining both toxic masculinity and beautiful masculinity, and I, I really want to celebrate masculinity in these in these last few minutes that we have together. Um, I'm not really sure how other than just to say like I celebrate your gorgeous masculinity and I really appreciate your thoughtfulness in in attempting to reject those to- toxic aspects of masculinity while still embracing the, the beautiful parts of your masculinity. So I guess just like thank you and you're gorgeous. Risa maybe you can wrap that thought up better for me than I can no
3: I'm just gonna turn it into an invitation so thank you and you're gorgeous and last words you know this this the idea of slipping a spell through the cracks to people who are trapped in an idea or or in friendships or things that don't give them peace in their journey of masculinity whatever that looks like or maybe it's through like a crack to an earlier version of yourself like what do you what do you know what's the spell you can offer if there is one
2: i would
4: like to offer the spell of listening of listening to the people surrounding you surrounding me um and the spell of compassion, of self-compassion. It's uh, every time I'm doing a ritual about things that I want to invite within myself, it's always the first thing. I think it's a
2: lifelong journey. Um, But yeah, listening and being compassionate
4: First to oneself um, to then be able to be compassionate with others. Um, I think it's for me the uh, road that I've taken to try and um, break free from these traps and like explore my gender, my masculinity, my femininity,
2: um, not only just by myself, because we never exist only by ourselves.
3: Yeah, this is radical magic. You say it so humbly and so gently, and this is the most radical magic for all of us. But I do think, you know, having been in academic spaces or um, working with uh, sound techs (laughs) or like in these like very like male dominated rooms working in tech, where, you know, that stereotype was very lived out, where like the, the men in the room all felt like they had to take up all the space all the time, sometimes to the point where it felt tinged with a desperation, like we can all tell you've lost the thread, but you're still talking, <laughs> like you're still screaming into the void because you feel like you need to know, you need to control, you need to land on something that, that affirms that you're in a place of power or that you're okay or something and the the kindness of including in our gender identities that the call to listen to each other right that like it's okay it's not necessarily about leaning in or leaning out or some sort of marketing buzzword but like that we are these loops around each other and looping and weaving with listening to each other and compassion can ease us i think out of performative masculinity and into something maybe much more powerful so thank you so much for saying that james do you have a do you have a a spell or like some sort of warrior scream
2: (laughs) may you slip the snare may you find yourself in the unknown May you let go of those who set expectations for you that don't honor the complexity of who you are. May you be devoted to being in the unknown and resting
5: in the incomplete, knowing that there will never be a complete knowledge of who you are and the complexity of who you are.
2: And may you enjoy Drinking in that mystery with harm to them.
3: Jonathan, what you've said was already so beautiful. James, that blessing, I think we'll have to cut it out and make it something that stands alone so we can return to it. It's so beautiful and powerful. And Jonathan, you've gifted us with so many things you've said that brought me to tears. Do you have a closing blessing or a spell? Do you got one more for us as Amy's gesturing? you're
1: done oh i'm definitely that person who can keep talking <laughs> <laughs> the i only i get to earn this extra spot by uh by being deeply impactful and so i get away <laughs> with it that's another source of power being able to suck up a lot of extra space the things i Ooh, would right
5: like to you got the invitation
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> the invitation. um what i was thinking of to wrap up that came from earlier was more about uh affirmations if we talked about masculinity in ways uh like a uh, old skin that we wanted to shed uh that I wanted to think about and affirm the things that were important to me and that have a like mask tinge to them or that are coded both uh coding like programming but also coded like in slime uh or in sauce <laughs> and some idealized versions uh and that i'm discovering more now as uh in my now mid-40s and like silver fox um plaid shirt you know lesbian adjacent dad era
2: to um solidity to reliability to a quiet strength that uh, like trees
1: can bend in the wind, but also stand and give shade
2: um, that will break and fall over in storms also yes. And that that
1: the deep capacity to nurture is not something that's coded uh, by gender, and that uh, the the rich Creative aspect of life, of living, of like engendering things, is within all of us. Um, as a like cis man, I think one of my major like life envies and like uh, tragic uh, Greek tragic kind of feelings is about not being able to uh, give birth, and that a lot of my creative energy draws life. From this inability to carry life inside of my body in that way. And it's an interesting wound to think to carry, but also to see um, what healing that, what addressing it and like um, engaging with it resonates out into the world and all the things that I'm able to do um, with my life, with my energy, with this force that's inside of me. Um, that's an exchange in some way for not uh, having that capacity, and maybe striving to do so, but in other ways. And so, think about generativity now at this period of like, what can I offer? What can I give back? And in giving and in generating, what am I offering to myself? And what ways am I also showing up and being solid and reliable for myself? And giving voice to that very small um uh fragile thing inside of me the sense of self or this like small child or um, this this son or daughter of mine that is
2: mine but isn't um and uh, and to let that that person out to play
3: thank you all so much thank you for being with us at this strange time in the season and strange time in the world strange time to be people (laughs) strange strange time to be trying to figure out how we make an impact that is healing or fertile at least um and thanks for being so generous it's your insights um struggles I don't know it felt like incredibly generous um the honesty that you shared with us today so
0: we don't we don't generally um type vulnerability as a masculine trait and I think all three of you have made us rethink that binary for sure
3: yeah so I'm gonna say blessed fucking be, but I'm also just gen- <laughs> but yeah, I'm gonna say bless the fucking me
0: And we're and, gonna say happy lamas, happy, happy. Yeah. And bless, bless the fucking me,
3: And
0: blessed fucking
3: be. <laughs> <me>. fucking
2: <Bless laughs>
3: Yeah. But I also just, if you guys have two more seconds, because Connor and Rachel have been with us the whole time. If you do wanna um unmute or turn your cameras, say hi, respond to anything. Um, I did want to give you the opportunity, although I know that's not always um something that folks are here for. Hi, Rach.
2: Hi. Hey. I just wanted to say thank you. I think that um, that's e- exactly the, one of the biggest gifts that that you folks gave tonight was your generosity of vulnerability and we really appreciated hearing all of that. Thank you.
5: Yeah, I also wanted to thank you for, for sharing so much of your personal experiences. Um, and I, I think one thing I was thinking of throughout was I was curious if anyone had
0: maybe a role model or someone who was in your life that maybe acted as permission to go against the grain or to be some sort of
1: deviant in a way. And if, even if it's not, you know, maybe recorded, just curious if there was someone like that and kind of maybe
5: some of the first steps you might have experienced um in terms of maybe changing either mannerisms or aspects of
0: of how you experienced gender yeah I want everyone to answer but I just want to say Fred Rogers to bring the name Fred Rogers into the conversation to me like Mr Rogers is the epitome of what men can do if they are good and kind somebody
1: else (laughs) so I feel like I told the story or a number of stories which really slag my mother and uh I feel a bit exposed about that and that it not representing the whole part of the story and that actually the person who is possibly the most radical uh about helping me in this way uh is my mother who uh, did not code any of these things with like feminine traits and that I learned uh whether I liked it or not to cook to sew um, to mend things um, to take care of myself, um, to take care of my family, uh, to bake pies when I didn't feel like baking pies or to like make bread and that I was deeply encouraged to uh, sing and dance and uh, be expressive uh, and be loud uh, as long as I also was like extremely uh, good at school. But, <laughs> but uh, I didn't grow up in a space where that felt weird or that uh, was uh, un- unwelcome encoded. My curiosity about these things was deeply fostered and encouraged.
4: Oh.
2: Um,
4: I think my model is also like close and and like family tied. Uh, it is uh, Jonathan
2: um, actually, uh, who's. <sighs> Like from the
4: lack of judgment and guilt and shame gave me the gift of being able to see my own self shame and explore it and um, play with what I was and who I was and who I
2: am and um, celebrating it with me. Um, it definitely being able to have someone close by who's just
4: with open, opened arms, um, and celebrating my person and like my all of my what I identified as my flaws or um my shame about like eating bags of candies and and stuff like that, um making me realize that the only thing now that
2: was stopping me was myself. I have two. One, I think the biggest
5: biggest exemplar for a lot of this stuff is seeing how most of the male figures who were in a position to help me failed me. And learning from each of those failures as much as I would from the permissions of people who would support me who that person was is my mom my mom was like this like extremely strong non-binary person who like lifted weights with bandanas on and muscle shirts on yeah my mom was fucking rad um she was the best oh, am i allowed to say that dang my bad okay time. oh no yeah.
3: swearing swearing all the time yeah okay, cool. i should have right i should have opened
5: yeah. with that. no that's my bad <laughs> i just forgot i know we always do that in the coven stuff so i should have right. but yeah you're, you're, my mom was good. amazing amazing non-binary person Woo! doggy she was the best and she really gave me permission to be as weird and out there um as i want to be it's why i still watch the x-files a lot <laughs> we used to watch that. We used to watch sightings. You remember sightings? Oh my gosh. Unsolved Mysteries. We were deep. We were deep in the or, like the original lore of the sci-fi channel. Like deep. <laughs> um, and that you know, I think being weird, um, and permission to being weird is one of the greatest gifts. And I mean that in a very positive way, I don't mean it in like the I'm talking about like the muscular weird, where it's like, whatever the hell you want to do, just go do it. You interested in it? Let's go do it. Um, and that was a big juxtaposition to um, other people whose love and acceptance was contingent upon me playing a role that I played within their world. I was a main character in her world, just as now she's a main character in my world, um, you know, within my death work
2: practice because I talk to her all the time. I talked to her this morning. I gotta get on that. I wanted to say
1: that craft allows me to bear witness to the process of becoming, Mm -hmm. to the thing coming into being that's being conjured by my fingers and from my tools, uh, as well as uh, the person I'm becoming by doing mm, those particular mm-hmm. things
3: i mean how because <laughs> we don't use church language well, thank you thank all you thank you all the, You're best. the best thank you for this. okay bye i love you i love you i love you thank you <laughs> thank for conjuring you, the you, real thank you, thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you, you so much my wise friends i love you <laughs> bye
1: you aren't being a proper woman therefore you must be a witch you must be a
0: witch If you want to support The Missing Witches Project, find out how at missingwitches.com and pre-order New Moon Magic, 13 Anti-Capitalist Tools for Resistance and Re-Enchantment by Risa Dickens and Amy Torek.